This is Jack, and I am flying solo today, but we have an incredible guest in the studio, Ryan, who is a single foster mom who is known on Instagram as Black Single Foster Mom. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. Thank you so much for being here, Ryan. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. We have a very important question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? Oh, I'm not a coffee drinker. So I'm probably going to have to go with like a strawberry frappuccino or something like that. I feel Uh, like I need to head over today because my son is obsessed with strawberries and I don't think he's ever gotten a strawberry frappuccino. Believe it or not, I don't do coffee. So it's not my it's not my go to place. Kat and I are both primarily tea drinkers. I'm drinking coffee right now, but I really do prefer tea and she will not touch coffee. So our main drink at Starbucks is usually an iced chai latte. If you're in there next time, you might want to try a chai. So Ryan, we are all in this foster care world for a reason. What brought you into this crazy world of nonsense? I kind of always knew that I wanted to do foster care. I always felt like it was something that I could do. I have a background in counseling. Going through my work, I recognized that there was this place and space for people that kind of understood kids' behaviors and things like that in a non-professional way. But as life goes, you know, trying to find the time and figuring out where it fits in your life and where it fits in, you know, your stage in life and things like that. So what happened is in the pandemic, I had some free time. So I took <laughs> licensing classes. You know, my my line has been everybody else was making sourdough and I took foster care licensing classes. You're the first person that has told me that. I feel like that's brilliant. And especially because like all of our worlds kind of like slowed down a little bit and everybody found different ways to kind of outlet that like stress and anxiety. And you did something that creates more stress and anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were growing up, did you know people who were in foster care? I've never thought about it in that way. I don't know what my first awareness would have been. So as a kid, I was involved in Girl Scouts and we had a lot of different families and family makeups that came to um, and joined our troops. And so as a kid, I guess I was aware that there were a lot of different types of families. My family in general always welcomed people so my family kind of had a lot of kinship and there probably was some official foster care happening. But in my family, 
everybody was family. So you didn't have, like, you had this sense of like, this person wasn't here last time, but <laughs> it wasn't a big deal. It was like, all right, everybody's here at the dinner table. So that's probably more of what it was, is that it wasn't a thing that there were lots of different ways that families happened and kids needed help and things like that. So yeah, my family, even to this day, it's just kind of like somebody needs a place to go. My family is someplace people can go. I've thought a lot about it, but that's not a way I've thought about it. I don't know what my first kind of recognition or acknowledgement, definitely in my professional world, kind of after college, I definitely wanted to expand my, I guess, reach and touch and how I was impacting the world. Um, So this was just another way to do that. I mean, I'm really impressed by what your family experience was growing up because you see so many people like racing around getting their kids to like a million things and so much less emphasis on what can we do to be part of our community? What can we do to help people who aren't in our family? I really want to create a family environment where my kids are more focused on others than themselves. And I have been doing a lot of kind of reflection of different things and, um, That Girl Scout experience, I feel like definitely exposed me to people with disabilities and different religions. And I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. So oftentimes I was, you know, the only person of color in a lot of situations, but I was never uncomfortable. And and of course, spending time with my family was always important. And I have a large extended family. I was also thinking back from high school, again, thinking about teens. And I remember having a friend my senior year in high school who Even to this day, I'm not exactly sure what the situation was, but she was not living at home. And I remember finding that out in school. And what I started doing was buying her breakfast in the morning and bringing it from McDonald's every morning. I never told anybody. It was just like, okay, she's doing her own thing. She's on her own. You know, we were seniors in high school. She may have been 18 at that point. I'm not sure. That was just kind of my response that, you know, and again, it wasn't a big deal. It's like, oh, I stop and get breakfast in the morning. I'm gonna grab her a breakfast sandwich when I get breakfast in the morning. And that's just what we did. That's a credit to your family culture that that wasn't a big deal to you. That was just what you do. You mentioned that you work in counseling. And, you know, there's always that thing about like, how do how do people become counselors or therapists? And, you know, it's either they were helping since they were a little kid or they needed the help and didn't get it, you know, something like that. And I don't know, I'm probably a combination of both, but I do enjoy it. And I think that that's also why I decided to do foster care was, and especially teens, because in the time that I contacted my agency um, about doing the licensing class, it was during the pandemic. The only class that they do person, the class before mine was the one that got like cut short, you know, when everything kind of shut down. And then the class after mine went virtual. Um, because numbers went back up. So we kind of snuck in there, but they were only doing classes for parents who were willing to foster teens because that was their need. I originally was inquiring about just doing respite because I just wasn't sure, you know, how much I had to give and how much I'd be able to do. Um, But when she told me that that was their need and I was like, well, I know (laughs) that I can handle teens. And quite honestly, 
I didn't want to do babies. You know, I didn't want to do babies. I didn't want to do diapers. I kind of said, I want to fight it out. I need words. <laughs> so that's kind of how this <laughs> words are good. And there's like that whole level of frustration when kids in their trauma don't have language to express it. So right. yeah, there's definitely to be said. In general, our foster care profile is anyone and anybody who needs somewhere to go. We've definitely found that there were a couple things that just weren't safe to have in our house as far as like certain specific behaviors, whether it's my son going like, like, you know, I'm sick of being like the only big kid here. Like, you got to stop taking so many babies. I'm sick of these diapers. <laughs> like, so we'll go through a phase where we're like, oh, we need some big kids. We need kids we can play with and go on adventures with. And then we'll be like, there's too many like big behaviors with like big, strong kids who are like throwing things. <laughs> we need the simplicity of some diapers and babies. So, But I think that helps us from getting burnt out is like adjusting what type of uh, placements that we're accepting at a certain time. But I joke with our placement team and my licensing specialist is like, if you call me about a kid, regardless of their age or behaviors, and you feel like they would fit well in my house, I don't care what I'm telling you. Call me about it. And, you know, we just want to help. And we can't help if we're not being like totally open to whatever God might have for us. So I'm so impressed and enamored with the, especially these single moms who take teens. Like you guys are just, you know, a lot of people look at teens like they're so scary. And when I actually have teens, I just love them and there's so much fun the interactions that you can have with them are so much deeper especially to someone who hasn't fostered or hasn't fostered teens it's such an intimidating thing so I feel like it's so important to every foster home but especially for single moms who are foster parents tell me about your support system who's in my network actually surprised me a little bit there were some friends that stepped up that I wasn't expecting and there were some friends that I thought would be more involved that are less involved nothing negative just it was very surprising I have some local friends who are so supportive and can come stop by the house and hang out at the house, can drop off at their house for a couple of hours to hang out because, you know, teens don't need babysitters. So they can, well. go, <laughs> they can go hang out. And then my mom, she lives about an hour away. So she's not short notice help. But if I can, you know, give her a heads up, she can also come, especially like if I know. So I have a very flexible job. I can work from home a lot. But occasionally there are things that require me to be in the office. And if that is going to mean that I can't be home after school or something like that, I might call my mom and say, hey, can you be at the house, you know, for after school for a couple of hours? So she'll do that. And she's also a support. If I want her to come to court with me, she'll come to court with me. And she'll always say, she's like, I'm doing this for you. And I was like, no, you're not. You're doing it for the kids. Because I never saw you before. <laughs> so yeah, you definitely have to have people. But there's still a lot of times where I wish I had more people. Because I also don't want to you know, be calling them all the time and bothering them all the time. There is that balance. Of course, there's respite and things like that. But I feel like with teens, it's simpler to kind of do it the unofficial way and just find that group of people. And in Virginia, where I'm licensed, we have like prudent parenting and all of that. So they don't have to have background checks and all of that. They basically background check your house and then they trust you to be a responsible parent. Obviously, when you're raising somebody else's child, you're on even higher alert. So you definitely want to make sure you kind of know, but the agency doesn't have to do background checks on my friends or anything like that, which I think makes it easier. I've seen on Instagram in other states where it's not that 
simple and it's not that easy. So it's harder to get a network and it's harder to get people that can support you. So I'm very grateful for that. Virginia is not ahead of times in a lot of things, but it feels like at least in some ways for this particular need for foster care, they're they're getting it right. We have something called normalcy in Florida. When I was um, probably in my early 20s, my dad was relative caregiver for a family member who was in foster care. When I looked at that and I was like, really impressed that he was doing that. And it was very intriguing to me at the time. But the thing that made it seem so difficult was when he needed to go somewhere, he couldn't bring her with without a court document. However, he couldn't leave her with someone with who wasn't signed up, background checked and approved to be left with even for a night. That makes that child's life so difficult and the family's life so difficult because how do you respond to an emergency? How do you handle your responsibilities that might be in other states? How do you go on family trips? So that was a concern for me because we love to go on road trips. When I became a foster parent, there is policy is called normalcy. And that is the child should live a life in your family where they feel normal like any one of your other children. And if you would let one of your kids sleep over at a friend's house or a relative, you know, watch your kid for a weekend, then you should be able to do that with this kid. Now they do limit it to 72 hours. You know, I feel like if it was beyond 72 hours, then, you know, you figure something out. But when you have a a solid uh, group of foster mom friends, that that can be really helpful because you're all already background checked and the kids know each other and trust the families. I feel like that's one thing that I missed out on in starting my foster care journey during a pandemic that a lot of the early activities and things like that that would have naturally happened. Um, so my foster mama I guess tribes on Instagram right now, right? And so most of them are not local and even the local ones are not local enough. I guess about five years ago, I started with just me and one other foster mom that was from my class and we would go to Panera like every Tuesday or Wednesday and have dinner. And the rule was like, you can't bring your kids. You can't bring your husband. It's just you. And we're going to eat with both of our hands. You know, you know, all these other people started showing up because there's such a desire for foster moms to have like that community with each other and also to be able to eat with both of your hands one night a week, you know, without like a baby or dealing with whatever emotional struggle that kids are going through in that moment. And when you have that group of people that live close to you and they understand the judges and the policies and what might be going on locally at that time, it's just really helpful. One of our co-hosts started fostering the month that the pandemic started. So for her first almost year, but definitely the first nine months, she knew like nobody who was a foster parent locally. And we have the same licensing specialist who connected us at one point. And now she's kind of part of our big group. And she says often like the hardest thing about starting in the beginning of the pandemic was not having like a tribe not having people definitely think that's a drawback for you know the whole pandemic virtual world of yeah I'm gonna have to add that to my list when I when I say why fostering teams can be great I'm gonna say you can eat with both hands (laughs) I want you to tell me about the family photo wall that you have posted it's beautiful Oh, thank you. I was just trying to make my home as welcoming as possible for um, kids that were going to come in and they'd be coming in day one and not know who I am. You know, I don't have other 
kids here most of the time. So it's just me and knowing that I'm an adult and, you know, probably not the first person that they're going to trust right away. I just wanted there to be some messages and some things that were visual that they could see. And so I took a lot of time to think about what I wanted that wall to look like. So it's just, it's strings and clothespins and they're just four by six photos. I have two nieces and a nephew and a goddaughter and I spend a lot of time with them. Um, we used to do spring breaks and, you know, summer. And so I took some of those pictures and then I also took pictures of my friends and me with them the people that I knew that they would likely see at some point so that they were up on the wall and familiar faces. And I used that wall to kind of say like, this person right here, this is who I'm talking about. I put the decal that just says together we make family. Also because I'm an African-American female and not knowing who was going to be coming in my house, I wanted to make sure that there were multiple races on the wall so that people would feel comfortable. Again, not knowing who would be coming in my home, I wanted there to be, like I said, some visual, this is a safe place representation of what I wanted the home to um, feel like for them. So that was uh, that was a very specific and deliberate thing that I did. Let's talk about teens. What was it that made you decide? I know that you've said you've always kind of had a heart for teens and that's who you worked with with counseling. But what was it that made you decide when you started fostering? I'm going to take teens. I was unaware that there was such a need the fact that the class was really only going to let people in if they were willing to take teens. And that just spoke so, so much to me of like how much of a need it must be that they were like, we cannot do any licensing right now unless you're going to be able to take teens. That message and then me knowing that I have had this ability to kind of just connect, you know, I kind of say they're like my spirit animal, you know, I get it. Snarky teens don't bother me, you know, and I feel like everybody has their space in place. And I felt like that was my space and place. And so it was time for me to get in line and get in my place and, you know, meet that need. It's not easy. They're my spirit animal and they break <laughs> my spirit from time to time. <laughs> it's so funny. But they're a lot of fun. You can do things with them that you wouldn't be able to do. You can have conversations with them that you can't have with younger kids. And yeah, that's just kind of where my comfort level is. So I think it's a combination. It's a combination of the need, a combination of the pandemic class that was requiring it. Me knowing that I could meet that need. What do you think the best thing about fostering teens is? They teach you stuff. They keep you young. And they're <laughs> hilarious. They really are. Watching the world and them figuring out the world and their thought process to the wrong answer. You know, <laughs> they thought it all the way through and still know, still know <laughs> that I, I see that a lot where it's like, well, at A, B, C, D, F. Nope, that's not how that works. <laughs> yes, it's still a, it's a letter. It is a letter, but it is not the next letter. What do you think is like the most challenging part of fostering teens? You can't pull anything over on them, right? My biggest rule is I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you all the information I have. And, you know, sometimes the caseworkers and other adults that are involved don't have that same approach. But I just tell them like, I'm going to give you the information that I have. If I don't have the information, I'm going to tell you. 
And they've had longer experiences to not trust. That also means that you have to work really hard to build and maintain that trust, but they still need to be treated like a kid. It's balancing that, you know, and protecting that they're a child and that they're a kid, but respecting that they've lived enough life to, you know, be given some information and to be given some some leeway and some decision-making even, you know, asking them their opinions and asking them what they think when it might not be the easiest route, but they deserve that respect and they deserve that acknowledgement. Yeah. You had a post one time, teens are still kids and you still need to treat them like kids. You respect their opinions, but stop trying to treat them like adults. You know what I mean? And, And what I found is that a lot of them need to be babied a little more than even your little kids as far as like affection and feeling loved and cared for and protected. Whereas sometimes the littler kids are ready for some more autonomy. Sometimes the teens didn't experience the affection that you would think a littler kid might need. And they just need some snuggles, man. Yeah, I definitely had an experience where I had a teen who had pretty much set a boundary, set a line. You know, they were ready to battle and kind of go back and forth. Their caseworker was in the house. They ran upstairs and the caseworker was like, I'll go get her. I was like, no, I got this. So the caseworker stayed downstairs and I went and I curled up next to her on the bed. Right. And I just said, I know this is hard, but we have to do it anyway. I could have gone a whole different way, but that that's that's what it did. I love I love the picture of that. Two of the more challenging teens that I've had really just required a lot of affection as far as like sitting next to them on the couch, making sure that you know, I put my arm around them, made them feel like they were loved and cared for and nurtured just as much as the babies are. The babies are easy to pick up and hold and nurture, but those big kids just need hugs sometimes. Just like being near sometimes makes a huge difference in helping them turn their anger into like a processing of an emotion or a processing of an experience or a trauma. I have to say that's definitely been the probably biggest difference between personal and professional, right? Like the connection in that way. And I think I underestimated how much of my personal space I was going to be giving up. (laughs) (laughs) I had another team and she insisted on putting her feet on me. (laughs) She claimed you. (laughs) Yep. Kind of along those lines, what do you think foster parents can do to connect with the teens? The best answer is going to sound so cookie cutter, but ask them, right? Like back to that respect, show an interest in what they like. Music is usually a go-to. Like you can ask them what kind of music, ask them to listen to the music that they like and try not to cringe too much. (laughs) I think they'll appreciate just being asked because you cared enough to ask. What do you think the most challenging thing is to be a teen in foster care versus someone younger? They're very aware of the system. They don't like the system making decisions for them. Two of my teens have been very clear to me that they don't mind being told no, but they much rather the no come from me than from the system, from the caseworkers, from a judge. We have a lot of conversations around, you know, I do still have to, you know, follow rules that are set by, 
you know, social services and the judge and things like that. So I think the generic thing that a lot of people going into foster care think about when it comes to race is, oh, I've got to learn about hair care and skin care if I'm a white foster parent and I have children of color in my home. But it goes so much deeper than that. And I think a big part of that is helping children to feel like they're part of the family, even if they don't look like the family. And I think it brings a different dynamic in your household where you're the minority and the children that come in may or may not be. What has that looked like for you? And was that what you expected? The transracial fostering, adopting and things like that are typically looked at the other way around, right? Like the white family with, uh, with a black child. All of my girls have been white. I want to say partially because of some of the intentions that I put in the house to make sure that there were pictures so that they knew like, hey, I've got friends, there'll be people, we can go out. There are also very similar things like making sure that you acknowledge it, making sure that you talk about it, ask them questions. Um, But there's some questions that I would probably ask any child that came. And with teens, you know, it's different than for younger kids as well, because I feel like a lot of that identity has already been established kind of before they get to me. There always needs to be conscious efforts to make conversations safe, to make coming to you as a parent safe. And that starts from day one. And that starts on any topic about anything. You know, my girls also, you know, they need to talk about sex education and safety with that. They need to talk about drugs and alcohol. They need to talk about those things that any teenager needs to talk about. But now it's with a stranger, right? So you kind of have to... You have to make the conversations and you have to make the environment safe. And that starts with letting them put your feet on you when you're sitting on the couch. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Do you feel like you've experienced any inequality as a black foster mom? Probably not specifically as a black foster mom. Being a foster mom is one part of my identity. You know, I walk around as a black female all day, every day. So I don't know that I have anything that I can attribute specifically in the foster care system. Also, to be fair, you know, I haven't even been doing this for a full year yet. <laughs> so, um, and not part that of I it, you were say, locked down and not out in the public. Right. So. <laughs> not that I want to say, like, give it time and there will be. But I, I do want to be fair and kind of say, you know, like, I haven't been doing this a long time. I will say I've actually been pleased with the reception that I've gotten. I was I was nervous having to take the girls to like doctor's appointments and things like that from a foster parent standpoint, but also being um, a different race um, from them. Um, and I have found very accommodating providers that you know, I would call ahead of time. I did a lot of pre-work, you know, <laughs> like I don't want this to be weird when I get in the lobby. <laughs> Something that I wasn't really thinking about when we became a foster parent was um, the fact that these kids are coming to our house from obviously I'm thinking they're coming from houses where there's drugs and neglect and violence, things going on that aren't part of our family culture. Right. So my thought process was more about how we protect our existing kids at the time. It was just our oldest from how that's going to affect him in his life. But one of the things that I hadn't thought of that has become an issue at times is kids coming from households where racism is 
normalized. I'm assuming because of what you've told me thus far about your experience in foster care, you haven't experienced this yet, but have you had any kids who had racist attitudes towards you or other people in your house? No, I have not. I think, I can't say this for sure. If that information was known, I feel like a good amount of the workers and things like that that they're placing, they try to take that into consideration and not go that route if it's, you know, if it's a known issue, similar to like if having a male in the house would be a problem, you know, they're going to try to um, avoid those homes. So I feel comfortable again. I also am still new, so maybe not jaded enough. I feel like if it was just known that that was going to be an issue that they wouldn't ask me to be the placement for that child, but no. And again, I've only been doing this. It's not even been a year yet. (laughs) I've had three placements in that time. had lots of calls, but once I have you know, a team here, I'm also very mindful of dynamics and timing and things like that, because they do require that connection and that safety and things like that. And I'm a single person. And so bringing in another child definitely is going to split that. So I've only had two kids at the same time once. We had a placement leave at the end of last year They made the choice to leave because we didn't want them calling my son a monkey. These were children of color. He said, if I can't say racist things, then you're denying part of my identity and trying to make me be someone I don't want to be. And so I don't want to live here anymore. So we, we found a different placement for him the next day. But I've also experienced where children have come into my house and I could kind of tell they came from households like that. But by the time they left my house, you know, they had very different perspective. So in the same way that their parents can be an influence on them while they're in a foster home, they could be influenced in different ways. You know, there's a strong paradigm in, you know, saying someone's racist versus saying someone has, you know, prejudices or saying somebody is using stereotypes or saying somebody is using, you know, language that is inappropriate. You know, racism implies power. Persons of color do not have that. I kind of fall on the line inherently of people of color can't be racist. They can be prejudiced. They can be inappropriate. For me, it's important to kind of make that delineation and distinction that, you know, racism comes from power. I think the distinction is the person versus the action. I think the takeaway for me is the statement or the comment can be racist. The person isn't, right? Like the person is basically... You know, gosh, it's a whole nother, whole nother conversation, right? <laughs> yeah. So the person has basically internalized these ideologies and in some ways are a victim of it themselves. They are victims of racism, victims of, I'm sure someone in their life at some point was um, also conveying that being if it was a person of color, then it's still just generational, you know, internalization of this, you know, this system. But the comments are definitely racist. I was right. more say more so saying that like people of color do not sit in a place of power to be a racist. So it is more of the system that they have grown up in and lived in and experienced and heard and internalized. And that system is then, you know, being repeated from them. Because if you think about it, 
that derogatory term came from someone in power that made it into this, you know, negative derogatory insults to Black people. And so they have internalized that, but it wasn't from, you know, it wasn't from their own creation. When the child comes to me and says, I'm racist. And if you're telling me I can't be racist, I don't want to live here kind of thing. Like, what's a good way to respond to that? I I mean, I don't know that in that moment is the time to educate him on power dynamics, especially coming from a white woman. Yeah, that's that's so hard. And you're 100% right. It wouldn't have been in that moment by (laughs) white, black or any other color. That's not when you're going to have that conversation. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I would have just said something along the lines of like, I'm sorry that you feel that that's, you know, how you want to identify. There's so many things rolling through my head. I'm like, you know, none of that would have mattered. When you have a teen, we're talking about that identity, you know, they've taken that on as their identity. And there are many, many, many examples all throughout you know, history of that being the case, it is created from someone else. Right. And then it's internalized and internalized generationally. You know, there's no benefit to them for that, right? Like there's no gain, there's no power in that for them, except in the moment, making someone feel bad. And you can make someone feel bad with lots of different things, you know? <laughs> so so you're not really gaining anything in, in that way. But I think that the foster community really need to do more and do better. And I'm talking about white foster parents with children of color in their home, where they don't think that they're racist. They don't think that they're saying things with these mentalities that are harmful and hurtful and evil. We all want to be able to help all kids, right? Like nobody wants to not take a kid because I'm black and they're white or because I'm white and they're black. Like we should just take kids because they need somewhere to go. But if you're taking a child from a culture or a race or, you know, an ethnicity that is not of your own, we need to be better educated on how to handle that and how to support these kids emotionally in their identity. What do you think that we as foster parents can do better, whether that's a white foster parent when we have children of color in our home or white parents raising white kids? Like, how can we do better? It's interesting what you said about white foster parents saying, you know, I'm not racist. And it goes back to that, you know, benefiting from a system and internalizing messages that you don't even realize that you're internalizing to, to talk about something that's in pop culture and right now is in Kanto, right? The amount of children that are besides themselves, they see someone that looks like them and you didn't realize that that was a thing. But then once it was there, you're like, wait, that's a thing, right? right. But you weren't, you weren't keeping it from them. It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't available. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've noticed after all of the unrest and everything from 2020, what came out of it in a bigger picture is people being comfortable asking questions and being comfortable having the conversations, which I think only good things can come from that. Free that. No one was asking me. No one was asking the questions. No one cared to ask the questions. I'll speak for myself, me as a Black woman at work or me as a Black woman in different spaces. I had to make the decision on whether or not I was going to bring it up and then guess what I thought the reaction would be if I brought it up. Because living in Black skin, you notice things that white people don't notice. Right. So like you see the looks, I, I notice the looks I've been getting them my whole life. I ignore them, but I do see them. I would say the best thing is asking the questions and being aware that there are things happening that you don't have control over. 
And so making sure that the things that you do have control over are more informed and are more, you know, taken in consideration the culture of the child and the child doesn't know how to ask for it. The child doesn't know to ask for it because they don't know what's missing. You know, they're going to be okay with whatever you provide them. My mom tells me a story. She was way before her time in so many ways. But as I said before, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and I went to a church preschool and my mom tells me the story of she just quietly went to the toy box and added two black dolls. She didn't make a big deal out of it. She bought the dolls. She brought them and put them in the toy box. But that's what she did for me on a very small scale because she wanted to make sure I don't care what dolls I play with, right? (laughs) You know, the the kids don't care what dolls they play with. They're going to play with whatever's available, but there should be a variety available. And so those small things, they sound small, but they're really not. I've loved seeing disability communities starting to be represented in film and TV and in toys and things like that. I can't remember what show it is. There's a character that has a cochlear implant. Just those small things. You don't make a big deal out of it because there's people live in the world, right? Yeah. So there's people, there's people live in the world. And so you just include them in your stories. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Not to do an ad or anything like that, but I was just talking to a friend of mine and I have felt like Target has done a really good job of changing what their offerings are, what your experience is when you go in yeah. the store. And what I love the most about it is they just did it. Yeah. They did. They didn't make a big deal about it. They didn't make this campaign. No, they didn't put balloons out front. Yeah. They just did it. Yeah. You know? Because so, they yeah, should. I, exactly. Everybody should. But the inclusiveness in there, everything from like having clothes that are accessible for kids with handicap to having toys that represent all. Do you know about the Harper Iman dolls at Target? I don't do a lot of toy shopping anymore. Right, yeah. right, right. Harper Iman is uh, a company. It's like a mother daughter team. They make these beautiful handmade dolls on their website. They're like $150 and they did a partnership with Target where they're, I think they're like $35 and they're beautiful, but they're sold out everywhere and they did not stock enough. So I drove like an hour and a half to get one for my daughter last week, but it's so beautiful. And when she saw it, she's touching the hair and she's just, she's so beautiful. And she carries this doll everywhere with her and they're gorgeous. It's across the board with Target. I'm obsessed with their Black History Month collection and they go quick, man. You have to be fast. Yeah. Um, They do, even just like in their books, right? And that's where I'm saying things like that just matter, right? Like I might not be someone who's into reading books, but it's really cool when you walk past the book aisle and you're able to see all different kinds of books and all different kinds of faces. And those messages, those unsaid messages start to inform who you are as a person, right? Like, and those messages didn't exist before. And the models that they use on their website and on their like marketing, like banners and stuff in the store, people of all colors, people of all shapes. I love it. All of us who don't live in black skin have like a journey to understand I guess my favorite part of all of the learning that was done in the past couple of years is understanding that we all have so much more learning to do until that awareness is raised. You're not doing the best you can for your kids. There are a lot more parents out there now that realize 
but there's more for them to learn. So that's always going to be a good thing. And then of course, there are still parents out there that don't get it, but there are way more parents now that get that they don't get it. They know that there are questions they should be asking. They know that there are spaces that are not their spaces to fill. They know that that is part of their experience as the parent. And that's okay. And then you just figure out how to navigate it. You know, ask the questions, find the safe spaces to ask the questions, or maybe not so safe spaces, you know, but spaces to ask the questions and you know, the kids will be better for it. People want to go take classes on things that make them feel good and feel smart. Like who wants to go take a class on learning how ignorant you've been because you didn't have an understanding of how important representation is, right? I'd like to think that... Similar to what I kind of say a lot in my posts about being a foster parent, that it's hard for us as adults, but just think about how hard it is for the kids. And hopefully for a lot of people, that can be the motivation. It's like, yeah, it's hard for me, but it's so much harder for my kid to not have this. For the same reason that I say often, yes, my heart breaks when they leave. And yes, it's a hard decision. And yes, you pour everything into it. But why not? And of course you need to. Because these kids in foster care did not choose to be here. I chose to be a foster parent. They didn't choose this. I did. Like You've had a pretty unique experience thus far based on how the world is. Whether you are locked down in your house in the middle of a pandemic or, you know, living how we lived, you know, four years ago. Being a foster parent is a stressful thing. Dealing with the system is a stressful thing. Experiencing the secondary trauma that we have from caring for these kids can cause the trauma fatigue that we all get as foster parents. What is your coping techniques? Like what is your self-care that you do so that you can keep going? I do try to make sure that I try to stay pretty regulated with sleep. It's not an early bedtime. It's, it's a teenage bedtime, but I try to keep it the same, the same every night. And they, they know it's like, oh, her eyes are getting crossed. It's like, yep, it's, it's about time. It's about time for bed. It's not every time because definitely some late night talks with teens are necessary. I do try to do that. And I did just start seeing a therapist. So I just got my own therapist and started that journey. I'm just realizing that I needed I needed someone to be able to talk to and, you know, have that outlet. I knew it was probably going to be a part of my foster care journey. I just didn't know when. And looking to do routines, routines helped me a lot, which made me not surprising. So I was going to say, you know, it's very actually very similar to younger kids in that respect, um, having those routines and making sure that the communication with my teens is pretty clear and that the expectations are clear. Try not to have too many rug pull out from under them situations just kind of keeps the household a little more manageable for me with a little bit of mom guilt attached to it that I've already let go of. Um, <laughs> I have uh, cleaning ladies that come. It was something that I found I was not keeping up with in a way that made me happy. I've kind of done deep dive into getting more foster mom um, accounts on Instagram, but just teen moms and moms in general. And I want to say that it was the one where you realize that all of your bowls and forks and spoons and things have disappeared. And I was like, right, where did they go? Where are they? 
<laughs> my, my husband is always like, where are our spoons? Where are our bowls? They're in the freaking kids' room. Like, we have a rule. No food in the room. Like, you can eat whenever you want, whatever you want. But don't eat in the rooms. But no diapers and you get to sleep. So, Love yeah. Those. Yeah. My girl right now actually was making fun of me because I do grocery pickups, right? Curbside. Yeah, of that course. Is, I did curbside pre-pandemic, by the way. <laughs> like that is just, it's a time saver. Honestly, I felt like it was a budget saver too, because there's way less impulse buys. Just get what I need. I can be in my house open the pantry and see what's there and then put it in the cart what I need. But yeah, she said um, she said I was being lazy for doing curbside and I had to break it down and explain to her. I was like, time is a commodity. You only get 24 hours in a day and this allows me to have more time to do other things. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, she didn't quite understand that concept, but oh I'm all about gosh. a good curbside. Okay, so tell me one word that you would use to describe foster care. A whirlwind. It was a whirlwind, you know, up, down, left, right, backwards, forwards. What is one positive change that you would like to see in foster care? Less disruptions for the kids. There's probably a lot of things that would need to happen for that to be the case. I'm kind of, I'm a big picture kind of person in a way. So like, that's kind of like the goal. And then, you know, if you step it back, it's probably better training for foster parents probably more support for bio parents. So less kids have to go into care in the first place, less disruption for kids. But I know that there's a lot of steps and a lot of things that have to happen for that to be the case. What do you think is the one thing for you that you think communities could do to have less kids need to come into care? Less stigma around mental health and substance use challenges. Because once there's less stigma around those things, then people have better access to help, aren't made to feel bad for seeking help. There's less judgment, you know, around those spaces. I think everybody should have mental health checkups annually and that there should be other mental health and substance use screenings that are recommended like by the Surgeon General even, right? Like we have colonoscopies and mammograms and all of those things that are just recommended. I think that in the mental health space and substance use, you know, behavioral health world, that if those things were seen as more commonplace and seen as just things that people do, you'd catch way more people much earlier on. Now we don't catch people until they're an absolute crisis. Yeah. And it's already too late to it's already like, too late. stop some of these things that have already caused more problems. Now this trauma has happened. This event has happened. And now you've created more mental health concerns for the children and you from having experienced this. I think that's a brilliant idea. What if even when you went for your annual physical with your doctor that the mental health screening was part of that? When I go for my annual checkup, they might ask, like, how are you doing? You know, how's everything going? But nobody's going to ask you like some of these questions that might bring things to the surface that you wouldn't think about. It's also interesting that you talk about the stigma of addiction and mental health because one of our co-hosts, Mac, who is in recovery from drug addiction and has reunified with her kids, she says that the hardest part about getting help was that she was so embarrassed. Like she didn't want to tell anybody that she was having the problem because she was just mortified and that that was one of the biggest barriers for her to get herself help. And she had to overcome that before she was able to say, hey, you know, mom, I'm addicted. And once that happened, 
that was when she started her recovery. Who are some of the foster care influencers that you really like to follow that you would recommend, especially someone who might be interested in fostering teens? Her Instagram is Melanin Foster Mama. Um, her name is Jessica. Another single foster mom who I absolutely adore. And she doesn't have teens, but she has four littles by herself. I have no idea if they're like seven and under or eight and under. And she's a single foster mom. I, I don't even know. And she's um, so underscore fortunate. And it's 08 is like the fortune eight. And her name is um, Sophie. And so the two of them are probably the biggest people that I communicate with the most, but who I follow and listen to, um, I'm sure you're probably familiar is Miranda Karen Bauer. I watched a lot of stuff and a lot of her story as well. I messaged her a couple of times like, hey, can I pick your brain? She's been so kind. What are your personal goals for making positive change in your community? One of the things that I am working on right now is I am going to do some training for my foster care agency around positive reframing of behaviors and kind of understanding teens. And how that came about was I basically just told them, I was like, I am never going to be able to take as many teens as you're going to need me to be able to take. So let me see if I can maybe help you get more families comfortable and interested in at least having the conversation around taking teens. Cause I feel like right now they have people on the list is like, as soon as they hear the age, it's just no, that's something that I'll be doing hopefully in the next month or so. I've kind of already submitted my outline of kind of what I wanted to do. So that was something that I felt like you know, bigger picture, like I can't take every single teen in my home, but I could try to talk to other already licensed foster families and, you know, also hear their questions and concerns. Um, hopefully get a couple of more families out there willing to take teens. I appreciate all that you do on social to help educate and inform and encourage people. I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and for all you do to advocate for kids in care. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.